Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Deaver has won it. Perkins goes in first. What a legend. What a champion. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Great to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Today we celebrate the life of a man who made a remarkable contribution to the game of AFL football in all sorts of ways, not only because he was part of one of the great teams of recent eras at Geelong, but also individually, he collected a couple of the highest honours in the game. The Brownlow Medal, the Norm Smith Medal. He's a champion of the game. His name is Jimmy Bartell, and he's with me in the studio. Jimmy, great to have you along. G'day. I'm actually really excited to have a chat, Pete. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Um, we're obviously doing this sitting in a radio studio, and that's part of your yeah. new job, being in the media. You always struck me as being a, a very quietly spoken guy. Did you have to sort of learn to come out of yourself a little bit to occupy your role in the media? Yeah, I think you're spot on. It seems like a bit of a contradiction. I, I, I'm getting paid or my job is to talk and I'm not a big talker. It sounds sounds strange, but I think you're more comfortable in, in what you know. Um, I think a lot of people, um, if you know whatever their passion is and you ask them about their passion, they can talk for days. And I think that's the case with me. I, I'm unashamedly a sports nut. My whole life has always been sport. Um, I was telling someone the other day, I probably own close to five to 600 sporting books at home. Um, What's your favourite? Oh, it's, it's really difficult um, to, to pick a favourite. I'm, I'm a massive reader. Um, I'm a bit of a, a bookworm. I have a lot of books on the go. I have lots and lots of cricket books because the fact of my birthday being in December, you always cricket season and mm. every uh, sporting hero brings out their book in time for Christmas. So you'd pick up all them and then Christmas time. But mum used to always walk around the streets of Geelong, you know, when you know, she'd go for a bit of exercise, you know, uh, mum goes out for a walk and you'd see a, a garage sale on Sunday, everyone's flogging off their old books, you know, 10 books for $10 and mum would pick up a big swag of those and bring them home and go, here you go, here's some more books. But look, I've, I've read, you know, dozens on, on Don Bradman, you know, the Steve War Ashes Diaries. We've got first editions of um, Neil Compton, the cricketer. Uh, I've got you know basketball, football books. I still remember one of my favourite books is it was almost like a Bible, and it was a nineteen seventies AFL book, and it was like Stan Elves, um, Peter Knights, and all that, and they were all described how to play the position. Yeah, you know, so you got Stan Elves describing the wing, you got um, Peter Knights describing the halfback flank, and all that, and how all the the nuances of playing it. And it was almost like I taught myself to play football off that book. Mm. It's like, you know, where to position yourselves. And, um, you know, so I actually had the old sort of, all the old retro footy books that I used to constantly go back and flick through and go, oh, that's how you take a hanger. And absolutely loved it. So getting back to your career in the media, one of the difficulties for someone like yourself just out of playing 
is that you've still got a lot of mates who are playing the yeah. game, and yet your role, at times, by its definition, has to be critical. Are you aware of that, that there is a, a very fine line hmm. between friendship and your job? Yeah, I am, and but I, I think it can be an advantage too, and I, I know what you're asking. Like it, it does put you in an awkward situation, especially if I'm talking about the cats, who if they were to go through a form slump or a good mate of mine is struggling for um for his position, for example, or he's coming near the end or, or whatever that may be. But I actually think it's an advantage because the first thing I, I did when I, I did venture into the media, I was sort of doing bits and pieces while I was playing, but and I still keep it at the top of my notes, is remember how hard the game is and the game looks simple from this you know vantage point. Mm. And I always still say that to people, that we can see the space at level two. We can see the game unfolding and... Um, I tell people, yeah, if you go shoot some baskets and there's two on two or three on three and you try and find the space in the key, you go, you can't find it. Now, AFL football, you put 20 players within a 10-metre space and they're all trying to knock your block off and then you're asking them to execute the skill and then also deliver it 40 metres away. Now, I'm not making an excuse, but it, it does help when you critique players and I still have a fresh idea of how difficult the game is and I think I've always been a fair and, and honest person anyway when... I've been with teammates when I was playing. You're always constantly critiquing each other. You're helping, you're improving, you're pushing, you're nudging players. So I've sort of always taken that perspective in, I guess, my media commentary. You're doing television and radio. Obviously, for those of us who have good heads for radio, that's (laughs) probably the medium that we prefer. But being the good-looking rooster that you are, TV is pretty kind to you. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer TV or radio? It's a good question. Um, I enjoy the dynamic of radio a lot. Um, what we're doing right now, I feel, is a lot more radio. It's I enjoy the conversation. I enjoy getting getting a topic or a talking point and thrashing it out with um, you know different people, getting their different opinion and perspective. And you can almost hit pause, yeah, you because know, you've got to get the ad breaks and things like that. And you can come back to it. TV a lot quicker. You've got to hit you know time points and things like that. So at, currently at the moment, I probably enjoy radio because of the more relaxed conversationalist piece about it. Um, TV is different. I like I like TV, but probably if I had to pick one, probably radio at this stage. And the thing about TV is that quite often you have to be there two hours or three hours before anything happens, and yep. you've got to make sure the makeup's right and the hair's <laughs> right and the clothes are right. And also, you know, if you're wearing the Channel Seven pin, yeah, it's got to be right. It's got to be absolutely right. <laughs> Otherwise, there's big trouble there. Yeah, it is. Uh, look, uh, for people unaware, and you know better than most, is TV to to make five minutes of. TV probably takes an hour. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's very fastidious in, in that way. And, look, everything has to be spot on. But, look, um, that's the way the way it is. It's still enjoyable. And, look, the way I look at TV and radio, I go along on a weekend. I go watch a game of sport, a game of footy, which I absolutely love. And I get to sit next to Lee Matthews, Matthew Lloyd, Tim Watson. Like, mm. are, are you kidding? Like, these guys have got statues out the front of the MCG like Lee Matthews. It, yeah, I still pinch myself. Yeah, there's probably a few um, saying the same thing about you, uh, actually being able to superside you for a game of footy. When did Jimmy Bartell transition from James Bartell? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people think I have legally changed my name or things like that. It's it's actually a rather boring story, which is, is kind of funny in a way. So when I arrived at the Geelong Cats, also there was James Kelly, who was in the draft. And the following year, there's James Allen, who went on to win a couple of McGarry medals and a list of medals, a very good player at the next level who I went to school with. We also had James Raleigh, who was already at the Cats. Four Jameses at the club. Ever since I've been a little boy and a, a little fella, I've always been referred to as Jimmy. It's like James is just the real formal name. You put on your driver's license and a passport. I walk past the media manager down there at John Football Club. He goes, can we just put your name down as Jimmy? I go, yeah, go for it. 
And then all of a sudden it all broke out. He's changed his name. Don't refer to him as anything else. And they go, they call me James, Jim or Jimmy. Just be nice and I'll, I'll probably respond. Gee, they probably have to do that at St Kilda with all the jacks at St exactly Kilda. Exactly right. And what about Bailey's at uh, the Western Bulldogs as well? Yeah, there's a very popular name, Bailey. Yeah, all the jacks at St Kilda. There's a lot of jacks in the competition flat out. But I've always been uh, referred to as Jim or Jimmy, even my school teachers. Um, I only ever got worried when I got called James, and that was normally my mum was upset with me. Uh, when young Jimmy mm. was just starting to take his first steps and learning to love sport, you were obviously infatuated with football, mm. but you were also a very good cricketer at an early age as well. I was thinking about this, and when especially the Cricket World Cup was on and, and the Ashes. Cricket is my, is my passion, but I love football as well, and I am so passionate about cricket. I can sit there and watch every single ball of the Test match, and I actually... You know, get a little bit disappointed when I turn away and miss a ball. You know, like I absolutely love the game. I, I understand why people don't love it because it's a bit slow moving and things like that. But I, I don't know. I just always had this with love, the challenge. Um, it's always a different challenge, cricket. I know all sports are, but, you know, there's conditions, there's bat versus ball, there's fielding, there's the history of the game, the fact that you can play the game in so many different ways. And you look at Don Bradman, the greatest of all time. Now, if it, if we were in today's ages, there would have been that many people trying to change his technique. He picked mm. up the cricket bat incorrectly. The way he held the cricket bat was so wrong, but he's the greatest of all time. We look at Steve Smith now. He's probably regarded as the second to Bradman. Now, do you think he's got a normal technique? No, no not at all. Know, Brian Lara he picks the cricket bat up near his ears and used to smoke him through the covers. And I just found the game fascinating that you can come at it from so many different angles and people from so many different walks of life play, play the game. So given the fact that you have this love of cricket and you were very good at cricket, how did the choice actually come about that football won out over cricket when you had this passion for the other game? Um, I guess there was a couple of things that were happening. Is I guess 2020 cricket wasn't where it was even in 2002. Um, probably the global nature of being able to, to make a living or take cricket wasn't as... I guess, open as it was. Look, you could still go over and play some you know, county cricket in England or, or do things like that. But it was really, if you didn't make the Victorian squad, you sort of would just float around playing some district cricket and things like that. But also football picked me in a way. So I, I finished, I played the National Carnival up there in uh, Queensland over the summer, rolled into the like my final TAC Cup season with the Geelong Falcons, year 12 exams, draft. Mm. And I was picked, and I was, so I was 17 a week after, or well, the day after my school graduation at, at St. Joseph's in Geelong, I was kicking the ball to Stephen King and Peter Riccardi and Ben Graham and the host of other young draftees. So it, it, it sort of picked me in a way, and geez, I'm happy it did. Was it always going to be Geelong, Jimmy? Because I think you were a Tigers supporter as a kid, weren't you? Yeah, I was a Tigers supporter. Probably um, the one that I thought I might have ended up was uh, the West Coast Eagles did a couple of visits um, to my house even the year before when I was ineligible to be drafted because of the age. So um, I had a lot of chats with the West Coast Eagles. They had obviously pick three, Chris Judd, but they also had pick six, which ended up being Ashley Sampy, the, the local uh, kid over there in Perth. And they were tossing up, do we go Sampy, who had a really, really good carnival? Do we go, you know, Jimmy Bartell? But we're sort of taking Chris Judd, the midfielder already. Um, so And I think everyone sort of knew the Kangaroos had David Hale in mind. They needed the tool. So it wasn't pick seven. So it was... Would it be pick six or pick eight? Um, they went with Sampy. I got told the night before Stephen Wells came around to my, my house, the Geelong recruiting boss, the mm. guru, yeah. Yeah, who they're building statues oh, of. Oh, there's got to be a statue for yeah, him. <laughs> exactly right. He said, look, if you're there, pick eight, you're coming to the Cats. So just quickly, there's a funny story about draft night is 
it was the first time where they swapped over the TV channels who had the draft and there was no one really covering it. You had to follow it on the internet and mm. they held it at um, the tennis center now where they do all the, the tennis stuff there and, um, you know, all those warm-up courts, the indoor. I remember um, Mick Turner picked myself up from my house at Geelong because he'd been down to Colac to pick up a pretty handy player in Luke Hodge. Get in the car, Mick Turner turns around and goes, Luke Hodge is going to be number one pick. You're going to be sitting next to him, act excited. I go, yeah, yeah, no worries. And I'd had a pretty late night the night before, uh, celebrating with some Bell Park uh, teammates there, end of season and things like that. So I was a bit sleepy in the days. We get up there, of course, you know, Hawks take Luke Hodge. I'm patting him on the back. They whisk him off. And I just found myself, I was sitting in a chair just sort of by myself with the draft. I actually nodded off. (laughs) (laughs) And I sort of came came to, and they're in the draft, and they go, uh, they're up to pick 32 Richmond Tigers. And they took Dave Roden. Um, I think it was Richmond's first and only pick for a while that year. And I went, geez, they're up to pick 32. I wonder if I've been drafted yet. And I actually got up now on the old school projector screens, you know, the ones you used to have in school where yeah. they ride on the plastic and slide it. They had it up there and I had to sift through that and go, oh, I've gone pick eight to the Cats. I completely <laughs> miss, miss my name being drafted. And I ran into Stephen Wells. He goes, we've been looking for you. He goes, here's your polo. I go, oh, can I borrow the phone? I, I need to call mum and tell her called mum and said, oh, I've been drafted, mum. And she goes, oh, that's good. Uh, where, where have you gone? I said, oh, Geelong. She goes, oh, what time will you home for dinner? I said, oh, I think about 5.30. <laughs> so that was my highlight for my draft draft day. So not exactly the most auspicious yeah. of starts, <laughs> no. but uh, thankfully for you, it was going to get better along the way. So much more to tell in the story of Jimmy Bartella, and we'll continue that story on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I hope you're enjoying the chat with the great champion Jimmy Bartell on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. So you're at the Cats. Yes. Uh, everybody looks back now and says... Norm Smith, Brownlow Medal, 300 games. It must have just all flowed from the word go. But it took a little while for you to establish yourself. Yeah, it did, I guess. I think what what happens too is that we see high draft picks and they're so well prepared now when they come into the game. You, you think Joel Selwood, even Chris Judd was a freak. And I think they think every player is going to do that path. They just come in and play straight away. I played the first nine games in my, my first year. I was rolling, but like I was saying... Uh, I, I came from a cricket background. You know, I'd never done a pre-season of footy. You know, fatigued. You, you sort of you start to doubt yourself because you're only 18 years of age. You're playing against guys who are 28. You know, 200 gamers. Like my first games on smoking Joe Mercedi. Like mm. he could run rings around you because of the experience. And I, I just think I, I hit the wall in my first season. The second season I started much the same. And as as you said, like the third season, it was. I think I was still learning to adjust to AFL life. You know, the professionalism. What what more. That I need to do also the different um, layers that came with playing in a game. So, you know, I, I came from junior background, you roll around, you play football for what football is. You just chase a kick and you do things. So I still had a lot to learn about the game and I was just going through those teething problems. And I think there's a lot of players like that. And um, you still see it today. If, if young players don't perform, we want to trade them straight away or he's a bust. But you got to remember 18 to 20, it's still growing. Like I was still developing. I was still going from a boy to a man, you know, the maturity that comes along with it and just getting used to playing AFL football. Part of that development, Jimmy, was playing in a VFL flag in 2002. How important was that to your development as a footballer 
and to Geelong's development as the powerhouse that they eventually became. Well, that 2002 side was, you know, obviously my first year of footy was pretty much the nucleus of those premiership sides that happened mm. from two, well, that era, 2007 onwards, and even final series before it. You know, there was Chapman, Kelly, Johnson, Ablett, you name it. They were all playing. Um, I think it's really important, and you've got to have success. And that was the bit of success we had. And now it's a VFL level, a very high level of footy, played against some, some really good senior AFL players against us. And I think it was just... I don't know, just built the confidence in that group that this group, my draft, and you call it the Cameron Link-Paul Chapman draft, two years above Joel Corey Enright, it just sort of, it galvanised that group that, yep, there's there's rewards for this hard work. If we just you know, sort of keep banging away on the wall, we'll eventually knock it down. So, yeah, I, I think that set us up really well going into the future. Eventually, the steps come towards 2007. That's glossing over a lot of your footballing yeah career but there are so many things to talk about 2007 is such a, a big year in lots of ways the Brownlow medal first of all did you go that night thinking I've got a chance of standing up and having this thing hung around my neck at the end of the night no it, it's kind of funny um when I reflect back on it I knew I had a very good season but also it was the first Brownlow medal I'd ever been to because I'd been suspended in previous years look nothing dirty or anything like that just clumsy accidents, you know, front on contact when they started that, you know, that when you bump and own your space, things like that, just accidents had happened. And I'd missed a week, you know, in the previous year. So it was the first Brownlow I'd ever been to. So I was just cool. I get to go to a Brownlow medal. Like I was like, a, like I said, I'm still the biggest footy fan ever. Also I had in the back of my head, I missed pretty much missed a game in the middle of the year where I got concussion in the first five minutes it was against the Swans. So that game was out. And I missed the final two games of the year with a burst appendix. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm at least three games down. So I just wanted to actually poll a vote because you don't want to show up to a brand law and not poll a vote. It's kind of embarrassing. Um, but but you just don't know. You, you don't know how the umpires view you, how they saw it. I knew my teammates had an unbelievable season as well. Joel Corey, Gary Ablett, Enright, the list goes on. You know, we had nine All-Australians that year. So, so there's some pretty serious talent in, in that side. So... Look, I just wanted to poll some votes. There's probably one or two games where you thought, oh, yeah, that if I'm going to get votes, that'd be the game I'd get it in. But yeah, when they read out three votes at round 20, it, it still wasn't processing in my head that I couldn't get beaten. And mm. it was Joel Corey going, oh, you've you've won it, mate, before Bruce McAvaney said. And I go, no, no, there's two rounds to go. And he goes, no, you idiot. You're seven votes clear. <laughs> in two <laughs> rounds, they can't catch you. So I was like, oh, gee, I have won it. And it, like... I was in shock, to be honest, because during the night, they were putting up montages of, you know, Rashudo, Simon Black. You go back mm. to some of the, the great winners like Bobby Skilton, and I'm just like, I'm watching and go, I, I actually don't deserve to be on the stage of these guys. And I still remember Adam Goods presenting me the, the medal hanging over my neck. I'm like, what, what's happening? It's just such a whirlwind. Just before we talk about the grand final... I want to talk about one particular game in 2007 that I think had a lot to do with you making the grand final. I was there. It was about round five or round six. It was against North Melbourne mm. down at Cadinia Park. And it was a bad loss. Yeah. Adam Simpson ran around by himself and got mm. 41 touches, I mm. think. It seemed like things turned after that. Is, is that a fair assumption? No, I, I think you're absolutely spot on. Even the results say to that. We came out and played Richmond the following week and, you know, kicked a cricket score yeah. at um, what is now Marvel Stadium, but at the Dome down there. Look, it, Adam Simpson ran around, got 40 touches. People, It was a bad loss because of the context, but we lost by four goals. So when you're in the change rooms, obviously 
emotions are charged. There's you know people going, it's another doomed season. Articles came out later that week. You know, shocking list. Burn it. I think I had a cross over the top of my head. You know, a dozen of my teammates. You know, no good. Which I think about half of them end up being all Australians at the end of yeah. the year. But I think what ended up coming out of it was you often hear these players only meetings and they can be a bit rubbish and you can say the same sort of things. But I think the thing that hit home for me, and I can only um, say from my personal point of view, is when Darren Milburn gets up and goes, I don't have many years to waste my career on us just to stuff around and just go through another wasted season. And when you when that hits home from a player going, this is everything they've ever wanted to do and all they've wanted to do is play AFL football and they want to win a premiership and success, and you feel like all their years that they've done before you've got there, you, you don't want to waste it and you actually feel guilty that you're doing that to somebody else. And I think everyone sort of embraced that. Now, everyone will point to the Paul Chapman. He came out and said it, but it wasn't just Paul Chapman. It was just the fact that he's put out in front of the media and he was the spokesman for the group. And there wasn't players, you know, standing up and getting aggressive, but it was just when it's put to you in those sort of terms that your career can go by and you can sort of the old, you can count your games, but don't make them count. You can really just float along in, in AFL and, I think when you think, oh, because we're good the year before, we should be good now. Because you go back 2004, we played in a prelim. 2005, the Nick Davis game. That's the easy way to reference No, it. the bloody Nick Davis game. The bloody Nick Davis game. Yeah. We are a good enough team because it, it showed it in the previous years as a young side. But then when you get to that point and you just sort of think, oh, it's just going to happen, you sort of need something to really snap you out of it. And for me, it was you know, when Darren Milburn just said, look, you just can't waste your career. Like You can go through and just have no impact on a club or no impact on, on, on your career, which turns out to be a large proportion of your life. So whatever he said worked. The it switch, worked for me. <laughs> the switch is flicked, and it worked for your teammates as well mm. because you get to the big day. Not too often, Jimmy, that in a grand final it lasts for 120 minutes that you get to smell the roses for about 100 of them. <laughs> but that was that day. Yeah, it was. Um, the fact that probably yeah, three-quarter time you're a huge score up. I think a three-quarter time where you sort of allow yourself to take it in as a player, probably for fans it was a lot earlier, we were, you know, getting to 90 points up at that stage. It is something that is extraordinary to, to be a part of. It's so hard to describe. You get this rush of energy that you're not even, you haven't even spent any energy playing. And you, you take it all in. And for, for being a Geelong kid, even though I barracked for a different club, I knew what this meant for the Geelong community. I remember it just generally felt like we won it for the fans, that, that premiership. I remember talking to you in the rooms afterwards. It was on ABC radio. And what happened that day was Jared uh, Whiteley and Drew Morford, I think, were calling on ABC radio. And both of them lost their voices <laughs> um, at half time, And so... I was floating around and I'd done a bit of work for the ABC and they came in, uh, I did the pregame and spoke to you. And I spoke about something that was making a lot of headlines that week. Mm. And that was your relationship with your father. Mm. At that time, it would have been difficult at any time, but yeah. how difficult was it to combine all of the elements that went through the funnel in that week with what was going on off the field as well? Yeah, I guess probably um, that week in particular, uh, Tuesday, you know, after the media sort of, um, you know, the, the all-in as they do, you know, the press conference after I won won the Brownlow. You know, I picked up the Herald Sun and, you know, the front page was, was him on the on the Herald Sun. And I I was a bit of a, I have to admit, I was an emotional wreck. And um, Ronnie Watt, who's a lot of people in football know, a great, great football man. He was our VFL coach at, at the time in, in 2007. And, was a great mentor to me, obviously coming through and coached me a lot. He was a huge help for me. And um, 
I felt the timing was horrendous. Um, I'd never spoken to my dad probably about four or five years before that. And I'm like, you've gone through a newspaper. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of emotion. And it's like, you know, this is supposed to be the highlight for, for my football career, you know, not only the Brownlow, but the grand final week. But it also, for my family, like you can always put yourself aside, but your immediate thoughts go to my two older sisters who, because of me, they've dragged into it because of the profile and my mum, of course. And so um, it was a really difficult week but the fact is Ronnie Watt helped me park it if you will on on Tuesday and he goes we can deal with it later we just your sole dream is to win a premiership for this club let's just highlight that and we can deal with it so yeah it to to say um, I dismissed it is incorrect but yeah it was a really difficult sort of 24 hours where I I had to really just rip the band-aid off deal with my emotions and then just get back into call it work mode if you will. Did the reconciliation ever take place? No it didn't um the last time I saw him, um, he ended up passing away with, with cancer. And um, no, I, like I said, my number never changed. You, you live in Geelong, everyone knows where you live. No one ever knocked on my door or anything like that. There was never an apology. I think when, when the moment happened, it was near my 21st birthday in 2004 where I cut ties with him. That, that was, uh, this might sound really harsh, but that was where it ended. Like, um, he died to me in, in a way, if you want to put it really sort of brutally. And I sort of dealt with the mourning of not having my dad anymore, even though he was still alive when I was 21. And when he passed away, when I was close to the 30, I'd sort of already gone through that a range of emotion. And for me, it was just to, to be a support network for, for my two sisters. So much more to tell in the story of Jimmy Bartell. And we'll continue that story on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with the Brownlow medalist, the great Cats champion, coming up after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I hope you're enjoying the chat with the great champion, Jimmy Bartell, on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. So you've got the flag under your belt, you've got the Brownlow under your belt, it's all just going to happen. We come to 2008, everybody says, ah, Hawthorne, too early for them to win a flag. As it turns out, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Uh, unfortunately for us, great for Hawthorne supporters. Look, 2008, I think we only dropped the one game during the year. Collingwood actually smacked us by about 90 points. It was, it was yeah. an odd, odd night. It was remarkable, that game. I remember it as a black and white supporter. It was one of those nights where they could not do a thing wrong, literally. Yeah, they absolutely wiped the floor with us. It was an eerie night. But um, look... Uh, on reflection, I, I have a bit of a different point of view. I've heard lots of teammates talk about 2008. Look, of course, I, I'm upset. It disappoints me. Um, you know, would I've loved to have gone back to back and it's another premiership? All oh, AFL players just want more, more, more premierships. You're greedy as all hell. But um, I, I look at 2008 a little bit differently is the fact that you actually got to give um, your dues to the opposition. The opposition's entitled to play well. And if you go back in, and look in hindsight's always 2020. You look at Hawthorne's form running into the final series. They were a much better performing side. We are getting by on talent, some individual efforts. The Bulldogs in the in the preliminary final, I think Sean Higgins hits the post. Mm. We get over the line by 10 points. We were just going. like The dogs were all over us. And you ask most doggy supporters, they'd probably uh, agree with us. And we hung on. And we limped into the grand final. We probably learnt the harsh, harshest lesson ever that you don't play players on reputation. 
you play them on form and fitness. We had a lot of players who were underdone or just, just going. And we got torched by a Hawthorne side who had a great game plan. Obviously, all the rush behinds, but they denied us the footy. Um, and you, I think what time has shown is, geez, they've got some of the all-time greats of the game. You know, Mitchell, Hodge, Rioli, mm. Lewis, Franklin, Ruffhead. You go on and Birchall. They're, they're a pretty damn good side. What it did was, I don't think we would have won 2009 if we hadn't have lost 2008. Some people might say, oh, that's rubbish. But the fact is that burning, as a lot of people in your guts at three-quarter time, and Bomber Thompson just comes to you at three-quarter time of 2009 and goes, you know the feeling you had this time last year. That's all he had to say. And that's all you – it was driven, it focused, it was on that, just burning away in your, your stomach. We probably started off the first club in 2009, the old managed – do you remember Geelong started yes. that? So there was players being rotated throughout the year. Which was a sin in football yeah. those days. You couldn't say that about a player. Exactly right. So we started to manage players, started putting bigger workloads into players in, in, in the back half of the year because we'd sealed up top four pretty early. Like, I'm not, not bragging, but the cat side was still rolling along. Like, 2009, remember, we were both 13 and 0 when we met the Saints. So we'd mm. already locked up a, a top four by about round 15. One of the greatest home and away games of all time, I reckon, that one. Yeah, we would get sidetracked. It's still the best game of football I've ever played in, and yeah. it was a loss. So, but yeah, so 2008, if you didn't learn anything out of it, that could have been the great strategy. But I don't think we would have had the era. Now, it's a hard way to learn, but I don't think we would have had the era we would have had if we didn't have the Nick Davis game and the 2008 grand final. So you come to the 2009 Grand Final. This is how good your career is. We only talk about Grand Finals now. We've got to leave everything else out. 2009. Was it 2009 you had 16 tackles in the Grand Final? Yep, yep that was it. Yep. And that was a record? Yep, it's AFL AFL record for a Grand Final. I think they've gone past it in games, but mm. it was an AFL record at, at the time. Um, I play, started the first quarter on the half-forward line, um, had nine touch, oh, I think seven or eight touches in the first quarter. I was going good. Uh, my form was good, but Lenny Hayes was going bananas in the midfield. Bomber Thompson comes roaring down from the box, charging out. He points at me and he goes, have you got Hayes? I said, no, I'm playing half forward, mate. Where you put me? And he goes, you have him for the rest of the game. Do not let him touch it or else if he does, they'll win. Go, I'm assuming you want me to tag you. And so that was the job I had after quarter time. And you did it. I did. Oh, Lenny Hayes, what a superstar player he was. But again, I had 2008 burning in my head. My focus was... If we're and because the way he put, it, if we're to win, I have to stop Hayes. He was going crazy. I think he kicked a goal. He had I think close to ten touches. He was Norm Smith medal on his neck at quarter time. Mm. So you've got two premierships in three seasons: oh seven, oh nine. We've spoken mm. about what happened in oh eight. Two thousand and ten was close again. Mm. Almost got there. You said you wouldn't have won oh nine without oh eight. Would you have won twenty eleven without twenty ten? Great question. No, I think Chris Scott came in at the right time and made the adjustments. Also, when you've got a new coach, it's um, you know, a new school teacher or a new friend you're trying to impress. So, again, you come back to pre-season and go, geez, I, I can't do the same thing I'm doing. And what does Chris Scott think of me? Because Chris Scott's come from the mighty Lions, you know, that, that dominant side up there under Lee Matthews. What, what, what impression does he have of me? Because, obviously, we've got impressions of, of players when we go along to the footy and commentate now, don't we? So mm. you think, geez, does he think I'm any good? Or am I going to still play the same position? So all the senior players are doing that as well. He tinkered with the game plan. He, he still knew we had a lot of ability there and he just made those little adjustments, you know, where we handballed a lot uh, under Bomber Thompson. He sort of dialed that a bit, um, bit back. He moved certain players to the forward line. Let's take the contest on a little bit more forward of the play. Um, what Collingwood were doing, because they were such a great side in 2010, 
like starting to build a game plan to beat them. You take the contest a little bit further on. The way you defend, we went a bit more to the what is now you know all that zone defence. Mm. You know, but you defend it in a little bit different way. We had, we did it our own Geelong way. Twenty eleven comes along, and at half time, you've got uh, a predicament again. Yep. Collingwood's doing well. You talked about what Bomber said to you in two thousand and nine. Do things stick in your mind at certain moments of big games that? is a trigger. Was there yeah. anything in 2011 that proved to be a trigger for you? Uh, I think probably there's a, I was, I started on the a wing and then moved on ball. And I think um, there was about a, a five to 10 minute patch where um, Geelong and Collingwood supporters would probably remember it. Well, it was right near the interchange bench and there was repeat stoppage, repeat stoppage. And you just started to feel around the contest. We're starting to get on top. Like we're just starting to win those little one-on-one battles. We're you know, just hitting a bit harder in tackles we were getting there first. We just seemed to have a bit more run and energy, you know, in that those little tight confines. Like we were able to power away. Guys were getting their hands free. Matt Stokes kicked a goal after again another one of those things, sort of on top of fifty, where he skidded it through. It just felt like we were just starting to win those fifty-fifty battles. Mm. And then um, Tom Lonigan started, you know, reigning cloak who kicked two in the first. Like the individual matchups, it just felt like because there was a bit of movement going around, you know, with different positions. They started to settle and players started to get into their work, if you will. So we come into half time and going, Collingwood absolutely dominate us probably for the first quarter and a little bit. But as we're getting closer and closer to half time, it just felt like this is all coming our way. And the coaching staff were positive. Yes, we, we've got it. This is what we do. For the old first five minutes, just pick up where you left off, just fundamentals, repeat, repeat. And we was just. It was super positive in, in, in our change rooms because we actually felt like actually we're starting to, you know, the tug of war, hang on, we've stopped the hole. Now we're starting to pull the rope back our way. And eventually you pulled it all the way to another premiership. So there's three premierships in five seasons. Yeah. Um, and just, just on that too, because we, we lost James Podziadley who yes. Yes, severely damaged his shoulder. I I went to um, centre forward, but he, a short ass centre forward, <laughs> if, if you will, which then... Completely changed Collingwood's matchups too, because then it meant you know someone I think it was Maxwell who was up on the wing then had to come back and play me, which shifted one of their defenders, which let all the knock on effects. So we were getting the advantage, even though we lost a player. Mitch Duncan was the sub. Mitch Duncan, as we know, plenty of run, carry, good ball user. That added something different up around the wing. So um, out of what seemed adversity with the injuries, it actually sort of played in our favour a little bit. Was the expectation that it would just keep on going? Because really, in football, does it do that? Yeah, I think you always expect it. And like I we was saying, going back to that conversation in 2007, you just wanted to maximise your time. Like, mm. We're in a great period here. We're, like, we're all around myself. You go into the change rooms and you know, the old, you're bending down, putting your foot, football boots on, you look across and you go, these are some of the greatest players ever to walk in this club at one time. How lucky are we? Like, Clubs dream of that sort of scenario. That's their eras. It's like, I'm looking across, I've got Corey Enright, like a five-plus-time All-Australian halfback flanker, Matt Scarlett, you know, five, six-time All-Australian fullback. Like, I've got them everywhere. Okay, if I don't try and capitalise on this, like, it's just a waste. And, um, you know, you're greedy and, and things like that. And I'm not taking anything away from the sides that won premierships, but you even look back now going, sure, we've won five. Like, mm. you know, obviously 2008, 2013, even uh, my final season when we got jumped at the start, should we have won that one, which the doggies end up deservedly winning? But you start to do that in your head. You're going, well, we won three, but did we leave another two or three on the table? Mm. Mm. So 
when you do come to the end of your career, some of those names you were talking about went a year before you. So yeah. there was a changing of the guard and it was almost inevitable that that would have some sort of consequence there. But it must have been a tough time, I suppose, personally, because you'd gone to war with these guys in a football sense. Yeah. Yeah, because, and that's the advantage, and that's what you, I probably say to when now you hear young clubs coming through and they always want to make changes. You've got to stick with them because the, the greatest strength you have in your football, uh, football club is continuity. So I think I played close to 200 games alone, just with, or 250 games alone, just with Corey Enright. I'd start on a wing and he'd be on the same side as halfback flanker. Do you know how easy it is to play with someone you've played 270 games with? <laughs> like, uh, the ball's coming in, he's clearly going to do that. I can start making a decision. Yeah. I think that's probably what was hard for myself and all that senior group is that we're at the absolute elite of elite and they were still playing some really good football that, you know, we're not in a development competition. There's nothing else. So why wouldn't you just keep running with the best players? And if younger players are better, they'll beat them out for the position. So I think that's just because of the environment we're in and the competitive nature of all those players is, well, yeah, you can play but you've got to beat me out for the position. Now, if they're not better, it's hard to reconcile that when you're a senior player. I think all players were coming to the end of their career going, but I'm still better. Mm -hmm. So until you get better than me, I'm not giving up the spot. So that's the difficulty when you're an elite athlete in that environment. We're just about out of time, Jimmy, but we've still got plenty more to tell. Our final segment coming up on the other side of the break. Jimmy Bartell is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back to wrap things up on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Almost 200,000 eyeballs here at the ground watching Jimmy Bartell and a kick which is got there! And the winner of the Norm Smith medal... It's Jimmy Bartell. Our final segment. We've got so much more to cover, but we've just about run out of time. But uh, Jimmy Bartell has been my guest and hope you've enjoyed the chat on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. So you come to the end of a great career, 305 games, so much to look back on. We've mentioned it, the Brownlow, the three flags, the Norm Smith medal, you did it all. But when you look back at your career, you also look back at a man who guided you throughout much of that career, Mark Thompson. Mm. Do you have any contact with him now? No, contact's dropped off, obviously, because he, he's had his personal issues. But post-football, yeah, uh, there's a big group. I, there's so many ex-cats. You, you can't go to the footy and not run into an ex-cat at some football club. So a lot of us all catch up regularly, um, just have a beer and just see how each other are going. And, and Bomber used to come along to those. And Look, he's an unbelievable football brain. And some people go, he's different. Yeah, he's different. Tell me what senior coach is in a little bit crazy yeah they they're, have to be they're, they're mad yeah. they're, they're seriously mad but it's just a such a fortunate time to have him who comes straight in and goes to that young group remember i said there was 10 in my draft 10 above and a couple either side of that he said i will build you to play finals football don't worry about winning you know games during the season things like that. i'll give you the brand of football that will win finals football and you had to believe him his, his time at essendon spoke for that so straight away you had that but then you also had brendan mccartney Mm. Goes on to be as a senior assistant coach and has an impact wherever he goes. Ken Hinckley, senior coach. Brenton Sanderson, senior coach. Nigel Lappin through that time, one of the greatest players to play in that Brisbane era. Even Blake Carousella towards the end, 2011. Won premierships everywhere he went. Lee Tudor has been a senior assistant coach. But the coaching staff put around us at that time, 
who's, who's one of the best coaching staffs ever, who knew what big-time footy was and just taught us brilliantly well. So many incredible and influential people in your career. Football coaches and, and people involved in my local sporting clubs. And I am forever grateful that I've been lucky to have people like that in my life, like some incredible people, role models for me, because sport was my, my great outlet or release from my day-to-day life. And I loved going to training. I was obsessed about training. If um, you couldn't get me off the training track, they used to try and send me home. But when you look back at it, you know, Local footy clubs and cricket clubs, the volunteers, what they give up, like they would have had long days of work. They've got their own family. They've got their own hobbies and interests, but they come, and especially down in Geelong, it's very cold of a winter's night. It's pitch black. It's raining. It's about eight degrees, and they're standing out on the field for people that they, you know, until they start coaching, they don't know you. They don't have to do this, and they don't have to give their time and care, but the fact that they went out of their way and, you know, like, I just a lot of my football coaches still to this day. I, I still tell them I, I thank you, and they go, "Oh, why would you bother doing that?" Okay. They they don't understand the impact that they've had on, on my life. Mm. I had the opportunity of doing a similar thing last year with Brian Martin, the mm. great race caller, yeah. who took me under uh, his wing when I was a young fellow just starting out in broadcasting. And sometimes, whilst you realise the importance of what people are doing along the way, you don't get the opportunity to say thank you as much as you'd like to. No, spot on. And you know, like I was saying that. They probably don't realise the impact that they're having on on me, so I, I want to tell them, you know, how thankful I am, and that I'll never never forget it. And um, I hope at some stage that you know I can do that in kind to someone else. You know, the old pay it forward sort of uh, theory there. But you know, they taught me everything about the game, but just most importantly that you know they just cared about you, you know, as a person, and um, they took time to show interest in you. And when you're a young fellow and you you know, life's a bit tough at home and, you know, you'd show up to a footy club, they just stick their arm around you and just mm. want to know how you're going. It, it, it means the world. It's been great over the last hour to find out more about your football career. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Really enjoyed it. Jimmy Bartell joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. We'll have another guest same time next week, one of the greats of Australian sport. Hope you can join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Backers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.